0: The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracetysd.com. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Um, Dear Heavenly Father, God, um, as we welcome in this new year, Lord, we also want to welcome in whatever you have for us, Lord, that's new, Lord, whether it's a continuation of things that are old, God, we want to be open and humble and willing to do whatever you have for us this year, God. So I pray that, um, Lord, that you'd be with us in this time, Lord, that as um, we listen to your word, Lord, that we would um, just let it sink into our hearts, Lord, that we'd just be receptive to anywhere that you're leading us, God. Be with us in your name, I pray.
1: All right. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Happy New, year. Happy New Year. I love it. 2020. There's a lot coming up here, and um, you know, if you're new here this morning, I just want to welcome you. My name is Randall. I'm the pastor of Grace City, and just thankful to be uh, here this morning to, to share God's word. We are, as Billy shared and as Scott shared, we're in this thing together for our city because we want to see uh, this community know Jesus. Uh, that's extremely important. We want you to know Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We, we want this community to know Jesus, and, and you got to ask, like, why does that matter? Why does it matter? Well, there's eternal implications to that, isn't there? You know, and we're in this interesting time right now as as we think about being in 2020. um, I was just going over this uh, study that was done um, by uh, a group of people who care about the future of the church. And I shared this as we were kind of coming together talking about this strategic alliance. And it's a a study called the, The Great Opportunity. And I was just revisiting that because it says this, that the American church in 2050. If you were to think about, okay, the church now, 2020, but what does it look like in 30 years? And the reason they talked about 2050 is because that's a generation that passes. And so what does that look like for the future? And, and I just want to give you this short little snippet that says this, as a result of months of research, we now think that we are at a pivotal moment in the life of the American church. What we, find, what we found was that the largest missions opportunity ever in American history, and if we move quickly, we can help introduce tens of millions of young people to Jesus over the next 30 years. This is an exciting time right now. This is a pivotal moment in history right now. And so when we think about 2020 and entering into this time, my hope is that you think afresh About your relationship with Jesus. You think afresh about the church and the importance of the church in this time, right now, in this season. This is extremely important. But it has to be filled with people who reflect the life of Jesus, right? Real Christians. True Christians. And, and so I want to share this quote from uh, Charles Spurgeon. Here's what he says. He says, I do not think the devil cares how many churches you build if only you have lukewarm preachers and lukewarm people in them. You think this next generation is going to change because of lukewarm preachers and lukewarm people? No. Passionate people who love Jesus Christ, who love his church, and who truly reflect what it looks like to be a Christian. Because you know what? Our culture right now in 2020, they're wondering if any of this stuff is real. If any of this is real. And I want to tell you today, I commit myself afresh to being a pastor that's not lukewarm, but preaching passionately the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray as a church body, as people who love Christ, that we afresh commit to being people who love God and his word and reflecting it in 2020, right? And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna start in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to the Sermon on the Mount because there are people in our culture that say things from the Sermon on the Mount and they don't even realize it, that it comes from the Bible or misquote things that come from the Sermon on the Mount, they didn't even realize that they were misquoting the Bible. And so we're going to start here, Jesus' most famous sermon, and really get to the, the bottom of well, what does it look like to be a Christ follower? What does it look like to really be a Christian? And our text today is from Matthew 5, 1 through 10, and so we're going to start in Matthew 5, we're going to go all the way through Matthew chapter 7, and so Scott and I are going to be preaching through this the first few months of the year, because really what we want to get down to is the nuts and bolts of does a true, passionate believer in Jesus Christ look like, straight from the words of Jesus. And so uh, the message today is this. We're going to start with this, the marks of a believer, the marks of a believer. So for many of us, during this time of the year, we evaluate our lives, don't we? We ask ourselves, um, how am I doing? And so here's how we evaluate. We say, well, am I going to the gym? My eating right? Did I accomplish my goals from last year? Maybe if you set some goals, right? Do I have any new goals for 2020? And then there's this evaluation and critique because it's important for personal growth, isn't it? We want to grow and get better. As we move forward. So those things are important. And the Sermon of the Mount is fitting for us today because it also examines our lives. All right, I was sharing this morning, the Bible, we don't just read the Bible, the Bible reads us. It's been famously said that, right? The, the scripture, when you really dive into it, it starts to read you. Hebrews 4.12 Right, So you think about the, the word of God is living and active. And so today when we talk about God's word, we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, it, it, it examines us. Uh, pastor and, and writer Ian DeGid says this. He says, the Sermon on the Mount challenges us with this question. To which drum are we marching? Are we marching to the drum of the world like those around us? Or are we marching to the drum of God's kingdom as we hear it in God's word, the Bible. Right, we, got, we have to ask, this is a very important question, are we meet, marching to the drum of just like everybody else? Or is there a distinctness, a, a uniqueness about you as a Christian? And are you marching to the drum of God's kingdom? You see, in today's text, Jesus gives us marks or indicators of what a true Christian looks like. But please don't get me wrong. The Sermon on the Mount is not this religious checklist. I do this, I do this, I do this. That, that's not what this is. But instead, it's pointing us to our desperate need for something greater. Or let me say for someone greater. You know, many times we take the Sermon on the Mount and we try to put it up there like the Ten Commandments. And you remember the, the, the rich young ruler who runs up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I, I, I'll do anything to follow you. And Jesus says, okay, what, what, how are you doing with the Ten Commandments? He says, I follow them all. And do you know what it says about him? It says that he walks away sad. Because Jesus says, hey, what about that greediness in your life? He just picked off one thing. What about that, 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 that thing that you're holding on to so tightly? Let me see if you're willing to follow God for real. Right? We get exposed by the Ten Commandments if we really dive deep into it. And the same thing happens when you look at the Sermon on the Mount. But it's not to give us a checklist. Commentator D.A. Carson says, The more I read these chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the more I am both drawn to them and shamed by them. Their, their brilliant light draws me like a moth to a spotlight, but the light is so bright that it sears and burns. No room is left for forms of piety which are nothing more than veneer and sham. Perfection is demanded. It's demanded. You'll see it in chapter 5. So, what is the Sermon on the Mount? Well, it's a message that gives us a glimpse of the holiness of God and also brings us face to face with our deep need for His grace. For His grace for his undeserved love and favor upon us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But God graciously gives it. How? Why? See, this is an invitation to take off the masks and trust in his glorious gospel. What does it look like to truly be a Christian? It starts by taking off the mask. And so... We're going to study Matthew 5, 1 through 10. And just to give some background, Matthew, who's writing this uh, this gospel here, is Jewish. He was a disciple of Jesus. And the thing about Matthew is he was a traitor to his people. He was a tax collector. And so he would have been hated by his friends and, and even his relatives because he had become a traitor because of greed. Right? And so... Matthew was saved by God, brought in, and given a new responsibility and role to follow Christ. And so he's this Jewish writer writing to specifically a Jewish audience. And you'll see that in some parts where he talks about the kingdom of heaven. You'll see this in the Beatitudes here that we read today. Um, He says kingdom of heaven because in Jewish culture, um, it was intimidating to say God, They had so much reverence for God's name that they just didn't want to say it. So they would say things like kingdom of heaven. But in Luke, you'll see the same things, kingdom of, of God. And Luke is a Gentile writing. And so it was a little bit different, but this is the same thing. And so in the book of Matthew, you're going to see Old Testament references all throughout. And so he's speaking to a particular audience And this section is called the Beatitudes because it's a rough translation from a Latin word which means blessed. It just simply means blessed. And so, this blessing, what does that mean? Jesus says it nine times blessed, 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 right? And so, he says it again and again blessed. Blessed, what does it mean? Fundamentally, it means this to be approved or find approval. To be approved or find approval. So Jesus is saying, okay, you, you want to find approval in a lot of different places, all of us, whether you're a Christian or not today, you're seeking some form of approval. Right? It, it happens every year during your evaluations. At the end of the year, you get this little checklist of how well you're doing at work and all these things. You want to be approved. You want to be doing a good job, right? Like all of those things. And so we all need that approval But Jesus is saying, you can try and find that approval from the world, or you can find it from God. And what does it look like to be approved by God? For God to give you that stamp and say, okay, you are mine. You're my follower. So in today's text, we'll study three marks of a believer that seeks the approval of God. And here's what it is. It's a a life marked by... We'll just study three things. There's so much from the Beatitudes, right? We don't have time to get into all of it today, but, but here's the thing. Three marks that we can find here. The first one is this, spiritual poverty. Two, grieving sin. And three, deep fulfillment. Spiritual poverty, grieving sin, deep fulfillment. So the first one, spiritual poverty. Look at, look at verse three. Right, Jesus gathers his disciples together, and here's what he says to them. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So wh- what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it, it, it has nothing to do with economic status. We'll just throw that out there. He's not talking about if you're just poor economically. Right, But it invites in the poor. It invites in all economic statuses of people. But that's not what he's talking about here. This poverty of spirit is this. It's believing that I have nothing to offer God. I have nothing to offer God. Right? It's believing I have nothing to make things right with God in my own ability and strength. The Bible earlier in Isaiah says this, in Isaiah 64, 6, it tells us that our righteous deeds are filthy rags before God. Our righteous actions are filthy rags before God. The best intended actions and good deeds at the heart level before God, they're tainted. And so here's what it is, only Christians believe that they have nothing to offer God. God. You see, Jesus gives us this visual in Luke 18 to understand what a person who thinks they have something to offer God looks like. Okay, and so um, in Luke 18, Jesus gives this parable. It says this, he he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10, it says, two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What we find here is that this Pharisee, first, says standing by himself. And so most people think that you know, there's this group of people who are praying, but he comes to the very front because he feels like he has something to, to offer God. And so he says, here's the things I'm not, and here's the things I do. And in that moment, he's bringing these works before God and saying, here's what makes me right before you. Right before you, right? This is so, so Luke 18 9 through 12, he's, he's giving this description. Jesus is giving this description of somebody who thinks that they have something to offer God. See, the, the Pharisee thought he could make things right with God. But in the Sermon on the Mount, from the very outset, at the very first thing that Jesus says, he says this, he's calling you and me to repent of our good works and our bad works. And to see that all of us are spiritually bankrupt without God. Spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to offer God. Even my best deeds could never make me right with God. See, this was shocking to the audience then and it should be shocking to us now. This is the bad news that we can't work our way to God. All right, that might, that might mean new news for you, but but here's the thing: we can't. In 2007, philosophy professor philosophy professor at um, San Francisco State University, Jacob Needleman, wrote this book entitled "Why Can't We Be Good?" You know, all of us are like, "Well, I can I can I can be good. I can do good, right?" But we we don't really judge ourselves. We judge ourselves on a pretty steep curve, don't we? <laughs> Yeah, but but here's what he says. He says this, he says, the ultimate question of human nature, why do we repeatedly violate our most deeply held values and beliefs? For all our therapies, resolutions, self-help programs, and the vast religious and ethical literature available to men and women today, we return again and again to the same limiting and predictable behaviors vowing to do better next time. This is why the Sermon on the Mount exposes us. Have you been there again and again saying, why do I do this? Why, why did I say that? Why did I think that? Well, nobody else saw. But what we see is that Jesus knows. God knows. And at the end of the day, all of us are spiritually bankrupt. All of us are spiritually poor. And there's those who admit it and there's those who don't. So again, D.A. Carson says, "At the very outset of the Sermon on the Mount, we learned that we do not have the spiritual resources to put any of the sermon's precepts into practice. We cannot fulfill God's standards ourselves. We must, have to, we, we must come to Him and acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy, emptying ourselves of our self-righteousness, moral self-esteem and personal vain glory, emptied of those things, we are ready for Him to fill us. We have to get this first. Right, no one comes in here at any point and says, here's what I have to offer you, God. Here's all the things I've done for you. Now accept me, now approve me, now bless me. No. We're all spiritually poor. And so are we willing to admit that? Are we marked by that? Second is this, grieving sin He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. First, why why are the blessed mourning? Why are they mourning? Because they see the reality of sin. Right, when when you know that you're spiritually poor, then you see how many times you fall short of God's glory. You see how many times you fall short of the mark. And so for us today, we hear this word sin, and some of us are used to it, right? We, we've been in church our whole lives, and we don't really think much of it. For other, uh, others of us, we may cringe at the thought or the idea. We may think, isn't that too harsh? Isn't that like kind of an archaic thing? I know I make mistakes, but sin? Well, again, this is a non-Christian American psychiatrist, Carl Menninger. He wrote this book in 1973 called Whatever Became of Sin, He says, is anyone any longer guilty of anything? Guilty perhaps of a sin that could be repented of or atoned for. Anxiety and depression we all acknowledge and even vague guilt feelings. But has no one committed any sins? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? He says, I believe there is sin which is expressed in ways which cannot be subsumed under verbal artifacts such as crime, disease, delinquency, deviancy. There is immorality. There is unethical behavior. There is wrongdoing. And I hope to show that there is usefulness in retaining that concept and indeed the word sin. Here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible does not mince words with our sin because at the end of the day, it is an offense to a holy God. See, our deep struggle deep within us is not just we have these issues, right? But we have a sin problem. That's why no 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 resolution that we set right now can fully fix the problems that live deep within our hearts. There's something much deeper that God comes in and says, okay, this is in you. And so first, it's, it's grieving over sin, and, and it happens in two ways. First one is this, grieving over personal sin. Grieving over personal sin. All right? so let's get back to Luke 18, 13 through 14, this illustration that Jesus gives. So we got the Pharisee side. The guy who thought he had something to offer God. But then we get to the other side. It says the tax collector. So we know that Matthew knows what it means to be a tax collector because he was the one that was pushed aside. Right? He was the one that was outcast because he was a traitor. Right? So we got this tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus gives a little commentary on what happens. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. You got one person who thinks that they're spiritually rich and they've got all these veneer and all the outside of, oh yeah, I'm right with God. I'm a Christian. And then you've got another one, the tax collector who comes before God and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus gives the commentary and says this. The tax collector, the one who's broken before God, that's the real believer. The one who looks like he's got it all together on the outside and says, This is all the things that I have to offer you, God. He's not justified. grieving over personal sin. See, here's one of the most important things I can do for you. is to get you to think on these things and to evaluate and say, am I really a Christian? You know one of the things that uh, Mr. Rogers, right? Mr. Rogers is very popular in the culture right now. He's got a new movie out. Beautiful. I love, I love it. One of the things he asked his wife before he died, he says this, he says, am I a sheep or am I a goat? Do you know what he's asking? He's saying, I, I've done all these good things, but am I really a Christian? Am I a sheep? Like, do, do I know Jesus for real? If Mr. Rogers is asking himself if he's a sheep or a goat, like, I think we should really evaluate, right? Like, thinking about, okay, am I, like, am I a sheep or am I, like, okay. Okay. Do I understand the gospel personal?" sin. Next is grieving over the sins of others. Matthew twenty three thirty Here's the thing about Jesus. It says he grieves over Jerusalem before he goes to the cross. In Matthew 23, he, he's, he's grieving over the city. He's looking over the city of the people that are about to put him on the cross. And he, he says, I, all I wanted was to gather you together. All I wanted was to hold you in close. And Jesus is weeping over the people that are about to kill him. And the thing about a true Christian is this. That there is a grieving that happens in your life where, where, where you look at people, you look at situations, you look over people that, 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 that don't even understand, like, okay, this is what it really means to be a part of the kingdom, and you just grieve. You grieve. It breaks your heart. Again, Charles Spurgeon said this, if sinners will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let no one go there unwarned or unprayed for. Right, well, what this is, is coming before God and saying, oh, I am grieving over those that don't know you. And what this means is that your friends, your family, people that you know and love, like people that are in our... Cult. Like, here's the thing. My son, right now, he's got this iPod. And he's got Spotify on there. So he's listening to all these music, this music. And, and there's, there's his friends are listening to music. And he's telling me about all these different people. And, and one of the people that his friends really liked recently died. 21 years old. A music artist. He actually talked about in his songs, before he even died, that he was going to die at 21. He said, you know there's a 27 club, like all the, all the artists die when they're 27, like the big artists? He says, no, now there's a 21 club. I'm part of the 21 club now. You know, he, he just died. He had a seizure in an airport and died. And this is the... the, the the artist that my son's friends are listening to. This is the one that he was like, hey, Dad, let me listen to this guy. And I see this and I read the story and I look at it and I'm just broken, weeping over this next generation. Weep, weeping over the, 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 the kids that are, that are growing up now. Looking at the people that I used to listen to and I used to be influenced by, and, and many of them, they're. they're they, they might be dead and gone by now. And just weeping over this generation that's moving forward. Like Jesus is looking at us and says, You're a Christian? You start to weep over people and, and situations and, and your own personal sin, and you start to weep over the sins of, of the people that are around you. It changes you. I'm already grieving this next generation. We mourn. But here's the thing, it says we're comforted by God. You mourn, but you're comforted by him. Lastly, verse six, deep fulfillment. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does this mean? Well, here's the thing, like I said before, we are all searching for that approval, aren't we? We're all searching for that stamp that says, that outside voice that says, yes, I love you, you are accepted. That acceptance, that, that final verdict that, that our life matters, that we're cared for. You need it, I need it. See, the thing is, we actually hunger and thirst for it. But We look for it in a lot of different places. Many times we're not satisfied, and, and here's the thing, it's never enough. It's never enough. It'll never be enough. But Jesus says, I want to point you to something that is enough. He says, for righteousness. For righteousness. Let me illustrate this. There is this book, Dignity, by uh, a lady, Donna Hicks. And again, not a Christian but here's what she says. She said, I heard recently about a man who was awarded this prestigious employee recognition award for his contributions to his company. By all accounts, the award was clear affirmation of his dignity. You know, when asked how he felt about receiving the award, he said he still felt like a number, that he wasn't really seen or recognized for who he was without an internalized belief in his own worthiness unless his wounds from earlier imprints to his dignity, were cleansed and healed, he would not be able to appreciate any validation of his worth from the outside, no matter how much recognition he was accorded. We hunger and thirst for it. This guy's hungering and thirsting, working as hard as he can every day and still feeling like a number, still feeling like he's not valued. And Jesus says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. What is this righteousness that Jesus talks about? Well, the Apostle Paul, who, again, said he was the Pharisee of Pharisees, said he did it all, accomplished everything, right? Was the, 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 the one who, if, he were, if, if, if anyone were to be accepted by God based on their works and what they could do, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Here's what he says. Philippians 3, 7 through 10. For, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. All the things that he had done his whole life, that he thought he was doing for God, the, the, the things that he had been working for his whole life, he said it was rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here's the thing, when, you, when you're spiritually poor and you know it and you're grieving over your sin and you know it, Jesus says, you can come to me and be deeply satisfied, not in your own righteousness, not in your own ability, not in your own strength, but in the strength of God and what God has done for you, right? He says, in Christ, see, righteousness from God is not earned, it's received. It's received. It's received. And it's open to any of us today. What are true Christians marked by? Not a righteousness of their own, but a righteousness that comes from God by faith. And in Jesus, they're deeply satisfied. You know, again, there was a study that was done, um, this group, and uh, it was the, the, the title of it is Unchristian. And it's talking about um, how so many people find themselves working and working and working and not satisfied. But the studies are showing that, that, that true Christians find their deep satisfaction in Jesus Christ, in an identity in Christ. He said, these are resilient Christians. He says, that's about 10%. 10% that are like resilient Christians, like real Christians. 10%. They just keep coming back to Jesus again and again and again. So let me ask you today, like where do you keep going? Where where, where do you keep coming to? Right? You coming to Him? You coming to God? You asking Him to cover you and, and help you in every way? Because that's what it looks to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You hunger and thirst for the one who personified righteousness in every way. So let me give you some takeaways, signs of a changed life. First, let me ask this: how dependent are you on God? How dependent are you on God? Verse five, he talks about meek. The meek will inherit the earth. What is meekness? Meekness, we don't use it much these days, but here's what it is. It's a deep dependence on God to be meek. And and do you know the one who perfectly lived this out? Jesus Christ. If there was anybody who could have just kind of gone through life and and not prayed, (laughs) right, not like read his Bible because he kind of wrote thing. you know, like, it would have been Jesus where do we find Jesus? Waking up early in the morning praying. Departing and, and just being, being alone with God, the Father. Right, and so Jesus lived out perfectly the meekness that we, we are to, to live out from this scripture. But meekness is a bold dependence on God. And here's what they say. Here's what it says. And they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the earth. Do you feel like your life is about getting your way and doing it any way that you can? Take over, bullish. Right? Because what it's saying here is you'll, you'll inherit the earth. This isn't fighting on your own strength. This is fighting on the strength and the power of God. It's it's just like God says to Moses just be still. I got it. Right? I got it. It's believing that God is working things out in a way that you could have never done. Next, are you known as a peacemaker? This world is not a peaceful place, is it? It's not. There's constant fighting, arguing, some of you are like, I had a lot of that this past week with family and friends over, you know, I'm like ready for vacation to be done, you know, any of that stuff. We just act like all of our families were perfect during the holidays. We got the perfect picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah I know. It's, it, it's hard. It's hard. But what does Jesus give us as a sign of a radically changed life? It's when you're in the midst of chaos You are a presence of peace. You're a presence of calm. And and what he says is, you're you're a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. Like ah, just like it was already there. You you have to make it. You have to lean into it. We're gonna make peace here. We're gonna we're gonna talk through this. We're gonna work through this. I want to give you some tests of how you're doing on this. How about, how about when you're driving? Right? How much of a peacemaker are you when you're driving, when somebody is merging into your lane, when somebody just cuts you off, when you're riding up Genesee, right? How much of a peacemaker are you in those situations? How many of you are slowing down saying, come on in, brother. Come on in. Thank you. People are staring at you, yelling. I, this has happened to me twice on Governor. Where so, Somebody's just gotten mad at me for something. I'm like, I can't do anything about this, man. I'm sorry, all right? But in those moments, it's hard to be a peacemaker. Let me ask you another test. Costco parking lot. I know you, you know it. <laughs> Costco parking lot during the holidays. Okay? Yeah, how much peace is happening in that place? You don't think of... Personal sin and all that stuff. Go to the Costco parking lot after church. Telling you, it's real. It's real. But here's the thing. Signs of a changed life, like, those aren't natural things. That's supernatural. That's something that God does in the heart of a person who truly believes in him. So let me ask you this last question, just the signs of a changed life. Do you see the true hero? Do you see the true hero? What's the ultimate point of the Beatitudes? Is it to look at this and say, hey, here's all the things I'm doing really well right now. And these are all the things that I can bring to God because I was a real big peacemaker this week. And you know what? I I am pure in heart and merciful and all these things. And is that what this is? Again, this, this book by Ian DeGid was super helpful for me. It's The Hero of Heroes. It says about this, he says, um, you know, that in the Beatitudes, they're ultimately not about you. You can't start with yourself. You would break under this. I would break under the weight of this. It starts with being about the true hero. See, how can the kingdom of God be yours? Because Jesus Christ became poor spiritually and utterly poor. Why can you and I be comforted? Only because Jesus mourned, because he wept and died in the dark. Why are Christians inheriting the earth? Are we not fighting our own way? Because Jesus was meek, because he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. How can you and I be filled you, cannot, you and I can only be filled because on the cross, Jesus says, I thirst, I thirst. Why do you, you and I get mercy? Because Jesus got none. The only righteous one to ever walk this earth, the only one who deserved it more than any of us, said no, not me. You see, it's all because of Jesus. Jesus. He was in the darkness so you and I could be brought into God's glorious light. The gospel changes everything. And until you and I see the hero of heroes, until you and I become truly like a a Christian, we won't be able to live honestly with the Sermon on the Mount. And so my hope during this study as we go through this is that we will see again and again the hero of heroes, Jesus Christ, who lived it all out. And said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being the only one who could have ever lived this out. And that you gave it to us and said, Here, it's yours but you have to understand that you're poor. You have to understand that you have sin in your life. You have to understand that it's, it's you, you're gonna hunger and thirst and it can only be quenched in Christ. And so I pray for anyone today that if maybe that's the first time we've heard that, that we come running to you, knowing that you came running for us. If that's something that we've heard again and again, I pray that it hits us afresh and anew. Lord, I thank you for the grace that we get to call ourselves Christians. And I pray that we will be people who truly live it out. What it looks like to truly live as Christians because of what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Gray City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.